Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Excited, very excited. Go for it, Alex. Oh, Nikolai's back. Nikolai, the most popular man on History Hack, Nikolai Eberholz. Hi, Hi Gray, 1418 on Twitter. King of Austria-Hungary in the First World War, um, but not actually king of the Habsburg Empire because that was crumbling and sad, and we don't want that for him. Nikolai, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine, I'm fine, thank you. You? And do you know what? We're, we're manning our way through this. We're manning up, but this is the second time we've recorded this because the computer chewed up the first time. <laughs> this is 24 hours before this goes live, and you are such a sport that you're doing it again. Uh, no problem. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe we're doing this, but go for it. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> we ended part one, didn't we, with the Winter War in the Carpathians? Yeah, we did. Before we get started, because we're going to start with Gorlitz Hatanov, but... Let's just quickly dwell, because you have a fantastic quote for us, about the nature of fighting on the Eastern Front and open warfare. What are you going to share with us? Yeah, uh, the, um, it, it's because so, so far we've talked about, about uh, war, war in the East, and, and of course one, one of the most important elements of it is that it's much more mobile uh, at this stage than it is in the West. And um, just to illustrate, that point, I have a quote from an, an, a Hungarian um, corporal uh, who's fighting in, in 1914 in, in the first month where he talks about uh, hand-to-hand combat and fighting in the open. Um, so let me quote that for you. He writes, Down, shouted a Russian officer just above me as he launched at me in an attempt to knock my rifle out of my hands. I had made a counter thrust and ran my bayonet between his ribs. In the same instant, a bullet struck my right hand in which I was grasping my rifle. The ball ran along the same finger that I had been wounded by the accident just a little while previously, and then passed through the fleshy part of my thumb. But what was worse, it shattered the rifle, separating the barrel from the stock and driving a sliver of the ladder so deep into the flesh at the base of the palm that it hung there, a great piece which I had to pull out with my own other hand. I jumped backward without turning my f- face, but it was too late. One of the dozen Russian soldiers around the officer leaped at me and thrust his long bayonet into the right side of my abdomen. He discharged his rifle also as he lunged, shooting away one of my floating ribs. I fell backward. The one overpowering sensation that welled up through the cruel pain was that of a great weight hung upon a hook that was pulling down in the wound and dragging me to the earth. Yet I could not go. I was held up by something when I wanted to sink farther and farther. I can dimly remember a tall Russian warding off two others who wanted to pounce on me and finish the job their companion had started. 
One of them got so far as thrusting his, his bayonet into the socket of my left eye, fortunately just close enough to the bone not to touch the eyeball itself. I managed to clutch the blade with my left hand uh, as, I was, as it was entering the socket, cutting my hand to the bone in the effort. Holding it, I jerked my head to the right and freed myself from the bayonet point. They were so enraged at me for having slain their officer that they stamped on my head and kicked me in the shoulder to add to my already sickening pain. They surely would have finished me off if another wave of them had not come up, driven forward by their officer with drawn revolvers and forced the group around me to move on in the forward rush. As they left me, my single thought to, to fight in defense of my life gave way to the realization of the pain. I rolled from side to side to try to find some position where I could lie without uh, shrieking from the agony. Uh, I reached for my flask and found it empty, nor had I any emergency kit for my seven wounds. That's just absolutely horrific, isn't it? Yeah. It illustrates very well the reality of combat when it happens in the open because, of course, trenches are, are terrible, but they're also there for a reason. They're there to protect. And, and in these battles, at least until way into 1915, where we are now, most of the fighting is going to be uh, in the open with huge armies clashing in the open uh, and fighting it out uh, in hand-to-hand combat. It's just, it just beggars belief. So we've reached the point where the Gorlitsa-Tarnov offensive begins. Does that go well for Austria-Hungary? Well, yes, it does. Um, as, uh, as we've seen, the uh, Austro-Hungarians have suffered greatly in the uh, Carpathian winter campaign of, of 1915. Uh, but, of course, the Russians also lost more than, than a million men, and they are also utterly exhausted by... Um, by um, April 1915, where where it was, we stopped last time, um, and of course this uh, this presents an an opportunity um, because with the Western Front almost completely static at this point and the Russians uh, weakened by these enormous casualties, um, the Germans eye uh, uh, a chance to to help their allies, which of course is also uh, close to relax uh, to to collapse, um, and. Um, Falkenhayn, who is the chief of staff in, in Germany, he agrees to launch an offensive in the east to save his allies. Um, in fact, the, um, in April 1915, it's actually uh, Conrad, he's uh, threatening Falkenhayn, saying that if he doesn't do this, he will make a separate peace um, with, the, with, the, uh, with the allies. Um, now, Conrad has actually expected that, that, that he would lead this, this campaign, and he's envisioning this, this great offensive where he will go from the south in a great big pincer movement and the Germans will go from the north. But, of course, this is much ambitious for, for his uh, already completely exhausted troops. Um, so, um, so Falkenhayn agrees to make an offensive, but only on the condition that it will be under German command. And the command will be under uh, a very, very capable general called uh, General August von Mackensen. Um, now, the offensive, the offensive is often thought of as a, a, this incredible German victory, but of course the Austro-Hungarians uh, played a significant role, and it's partly uh, due to Austro-Hungarian uh, intelligence that the, the blow that will punch through the Russian lines will fall where it does. And on... The 2nd of May, uh, von Mackensen's Austro-German force, they punch a hole through the Russian lines east of uh, Krakow near these two cities, Golitz and Tano, 
which of course is where we get the name for the goal. It's a ton of offensive, although only a, a, a small part of the the uh, campaign is fought there. Mm. And um, soon the entire Russian line just crumbles. And about a week later, the Russian Third Army is almost completely destroyed. And the Russians pull back to the San River, uh, which is where we had this. Uh, we talked about the the um, uh, the Shemis, uh fortress in 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 part one. This uh, Austrian uh, fortress yep. um, that Conrad desperately wanted to 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 save before before it actually had to surrender. Uh, and they capture it at this time, of course, too late. But they do capture it, and um, to with the with the line uh, at the sand broken, the Russians realize that they they have to do something drastic. And on the twenty first of June, they order this great uh, retreat, as it will be known, uh, all the way back to Galicia. And um, and soon the Austro-German forces are capturing uh, Lemberg, and the the entire line is just pushed back more than three hundred kilometers um, when it ends, and and will result in Austria-Hungary pretty much recapturing most of what they have lost so far, uh, but also taking uh, enormous uh, amounts of Russian prisoners. The, the Russian will lose something between three hundred and four hundred thousand men. Um, uh, Sometimes you hear numbers up to like a million prisoners. Uh, so it, it is it is a great military victory for the uh, for the Austro-Hungarians and Germans. But of course, the only one who isn't really happy about this is Conrad, who will feel that the Germans will take all the credit for for what he thinks of as his offensive, and he feels that it is. Yeah, he's he never is. happy, though, is he? He's oh. never happy, <laughs> but it's not his. Uh, you know, it, it is. It is a German. I should have just put his girlfriend in charge rather than him, and it may have turned out a whole lot better for Austria yeah, Hungary. I, I know you're you're a fan of the the girlfriend relationship, Alex. Oh, I just <laughs> what what a dick. Well, I realized last <laughs> last time, the first time we did this one, because of course this is the second time we do it, uh, that we actually never finished the love story, and it fits quite well into here. Oh, go on, uh, tell us then. Tell yeah. me she dumped him. I would no, love that. No, no, oh. but it's weirder. It's much weirder. <laughs> okay. How uh, much weirder can it get? Seriously. <laughs> well, it gets so weird that because, if you remember correctly, uh, she is married, um, of course, and has a lot of children with this uh, industrialist in Austria. In the Austrian part, and that's key because in Austria you can't really divorce like that and remarry. You can't remarry if you've divorced like like that. There's some. I'm not an expert on on <laughs> on marital law in Austria Hungary, but they figure out that uh, she can marry him if she becomes a Hungarian citizen, where they're more liberal with that. So what what they do is that she will be adopted by one of Conrad's generals and become oh a Hungarian God. citizen through that, and then they can get married, and they get married in 1915. Dude, that's just creepy. Yeah, it's weird. It's just getting weird. creepy now. Yeah. Right, let's move on from him. <laughs> just, so... I just realised we never actually ended, we talked a lot about it, but we never actually ended the love story of a century. We're just kind of speechless, really. Forget Meghan and Harry, that is the love story of the century. <laughs> right, okay, so... <laughs> Things are looking good for Austria-Hungary, but they're not so good because along comes Italia, perfidious Italy, as Asquith refers to them, because they basically pimp themselves out um, as to which side they're going to go in on, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, they're, they're, of course, um, 
they're, they're allied to to Austria, Hungary, and Germany before the war, and they are also pretty much uh, allied uh, with the Bob until the point that they actually declare war with with Austria uh, in in May 1915. But of course, they remained neutral in 1914, claiming that they didn't uh, need to go to war as the uh, the alliance they had was um, was only defensive. Um, but it, in reality, they have no interest in going going to war for Austria-Hungary because most of their uh, interests are in uh, in Austro-Hungarian territory, specifically uh, Trentino uh, in the Alps and, and Trieste on the uh, on the Adriatic coast. This is known as the uh, Terra Irredenta, the unredeemed lands, which is part of this whole long process of of uh, unification for for, for Italy. Uh, and they they want that land, and of course, the uh, they want um, that if, if to go to war f- with their allies, they want that land. Um, but at the same time, they're also negotiating with France and and uh, and, and the United Kingdom about about uh, if they go to war for them, that they will get this. And we're actually at a point uh, where, where Germany is saying to Austria, just give them to just give the land to to Italy, because you know if we win the war. We don't have to give them to it because they will never be able to take it by force. And if we if if we lose, you're going to lose it anyway. So um, anyway, by uh, yeah, <laughs> I love, they by, want the whole of the Croatian coastline as well, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's the next thing that the uh, um, the uh, Treaty of London that they will sign in in April 1915, promising to go to war within a month. They will also be promised all kinds of other uh, uh, territory. I think it's it's a Dalmatian coast, and then it's um, the Dodecanese Islands and some part of Turkey as well. And they they they'll be promised a lot, and they will get very little, of course, as we know uh, in 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 the peace negotiations uh, after the war. Um, but of course, in in 1915, it looks like the perfect chance to go to war for for Italy against Austria-Hungary because they've just been been beaten in Serbia uh, relentlessly for the pretty much all of of 1914. They haven't really been able to cross the Russians, and they've just lost a lot of troops in uh, in the Carpathians. Remember, about 800,000 troops in three months. Um, so they they're looking at this and thinking that that now is the time to strike. Um, uh, but of course, when they finally finish, that's when when Austria-Hungary and Germany are winning in 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 uh, in the east during the Golitsyn-Tunnel offensive. So, of course, when the, when they do attack, uh, they are not as weak as they could have been. What's hilarious, if you're a Western Front person, which let's be honest, most people are listening to this podcast, is the thirty thousand battles of the Isonzo that yes. occur in World War One um, between Italy and Austria-Hungary and. There are four. The first four of them occur in 1915, don't they? So how do they go? And what is the Azonzo? And why do they keep scrapping over this one river? Yeah, the uh, the, the front that opens when Italy goes to war is is enormous. It is about 650 kilometers from the Swiss border uh, along the Alps and then down to the Adriatic. Just by comparison, um, that's the length of, of course, the Western of- Front, isn't it? Yes, and it, 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 yeah, pretty much a little shorter, but, but pretty much, and it, it opens overnight. Yes, but it also opens overnight, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a new front that will be manned by by primarily Italy and um, 
and Austria-Hungary for the majority of the war, with only a, a few times where the Germans or, or um, uh, French and, and British will be involved. It will be a, an Austro-Italian front. And of course, as you say, it is Alps. It is the highest mountains in Europe. It's uh, running all along, um, except for this tiny part in the uh, in the far east part of the front, uh, down towards the Adriatic, where the where the mountains peter out, and that's where the Isonzo River, also the Socha River, um, today. Uh, the uh, that that's where the Italians envisaged this frost uh, across and and into um, into Austria-Hungary to Ljubljana, and then they they envisaged this, uh, they have this idea of a, a walk to Vienna after that. It's very 1914, even though we're in 1915. But um, it's all been envisaged by, by this guy called Luigi Cardona, who is the chief of staff of the uh, Italian army, and he has this grand idea of of a sweeping offensive like everybody had a year prior, but it seems mm. like he, he hasn't really followed what is happening. Of course, he's also limited to that one part of the front, which is something uh, some historians point out that while we can laugh that, that he keeps attacking this one point, it is pretty much the only point that you can launch an offensive at this, at, at this time, especially if you're Italy. Um, now, what sets up the Estancia front is, of course, that um, Austria-Hungary realizes that they don't have the men to defend this this front. So what they do is that they decide to give up a lot of territory and they pull back. They pull back uh, out of the, uh, the Italian plains uh, all the way to the high points, which means that pretty much for the entire war, it will be the Austrians looking down at the Italians. And of course, everybody knows that it's hard to fight uphill, especially mm. hard to fight uphill if that is a, a 3,000 meter tall mountain. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the Austrians pull back and the Italians run headstrong into this, uh, this, uh, very, very good defensive position, which is also being handled by one of, uh, Austria-Hungary's best generals, the, uh, the famous, uh, Svetosar Borevich, who uh, was also the, the guy we heard about who, um, who briefly relieved the uh, Shemis uh, fortress in 1914. Um, but yes, uh, there are four battles. There will be uh, 12 in total. Sometimes you count 11 and then call the 12 something different. But but 12 battles of the Asunso throughout the war. Yeah, as you said, there will be um, there will be four uh, battles of the Asunso in 1915. Um, there will, of course, be... Um, there will be 12 battles in total. Sometimes you count 11 battles and say the 12th is something else we'll get to in, in the next part. Um, but yeah, there will, be, there will be 12 battles along this river and they're pretty much going to be very similar with the Italians attacking uh, uh, the Austro-Hungarians um, and, and failing to, to actually push through. They will take ground. They will cause enormous casualties and the fighting is brutal, but they will not break through as they envisage. Um, and I have a quote um, just to to illustrate how 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 the fighting is because when we say there, there's uh, so many battles on the on this front, it's hard to sometimes uh, see how how it works and and, and think okay is, is this a, a serious battle? But they they are brutal battles, and this one is um, is a is a, a quote from um, from the uh, the diary of an 
an Austrian officer that we don't really know the name of, but he's writing during the the second battle uh, in in July 1915. So mm-hmm. so about a, uh, two months into the the conflict. So on the 17th of July uh, 1915, he writes, "Terrible bombardment, worse than any man can bear. It is a wonder I am still alive." Grenades fall like hailstones, each one looking for its victim. The sound of artillery is the voice of death. The number of wounded is incredible. We no longer have enough stretcher bearers. Fear is driving people mad. I, too, think that I'm heading that way. Yes, I'm shaking with fear and despondency. It is all very well to talk of putting up a fight, but in reality, it is not humanly possible. We're retreating into the valley. Then on the 18th, he writes, In the night, the artillery fire became insanely heavy. This is the end, I thought, and prepared to die like a proper Christian. But I'm still so young. Um, To die without a confession, without the words of comfort and faith of our holy religion. O Italy, may God punish your king and your treacherous people. And then on the 19th, um, It is enough to drive you insane. Dead, wounded, massive losses. This is the end. Unprecedented slaughter. A horrific bloodbath. The blood is everywhere. And the dead and bits of soldiers like scattered about so that. And that's, of course, where the, the diary ends because he's killed as he writes the, the, the diary and is found by a fellow soldier. It's a, it's a brutal cro- quote. And it, it, but but one thing that is worth noting as well is he calls the, the Italians treacherous. And that is a, a thing that will go on uh, throughout the war. This this idea that, that Austria-Hungary was stabbed in the back by the Italians. Um, and and where sometimes the uh, some, some of the uh, multinational troops uh, or some of the soldiers of this multinational army will be less enthusiastic about fighting the Russians, for example, the Serbs or or, or, or some of these other enemies, um, they're pretty much all going to be happy about fighting the Italians. Uh, so it becomes a very strong unifying enemy for, for Austria-Hungary, and, and every nationality of the Austro-Hungarian army will, will fight well against uh, the Italians. So, t- so tell us, how does the year end for Austria-Hungary? Yes. Um, well, uh, Conrad is, of course, still in charge, so no. naturally we will have, uh, <laughs> more, we'll have more offensives, as always. Um, so in, uh, we talked about before that he was, um, he was not very happy about the, the uh, Germans taking the credit or getting the credit uh, for the Golisitano offensive, and eager to prove that he and his army is still able to win uh, independent of their allies, uh, he launches another offensive in the east, uh, this time in uh, in the region called uh, Volhynia, uh, and the offensive is, is it begins in in August and it lasts almost a month. As it names uh, the he, he calls it the Schwarzgelbe offensive or the Black and Yellow offensive, um, but of course uh, it is just another of his grandiose schemes that far awaits the actual uh, you know. Um, capability of his troops and and he spends so many troops fighting for 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 something that really isn't uh producing the results he will take some ground and he will will uh, take take a couple of 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 cities that they've lost before but but it is it is nothing like the uh like the losses they have um the uh the uh the numbers run into 
230,000 casualties uh, for this offensive that nobody really heard of. In uh, in Austria-Hungary, they they will, they will call it the Herbsttau, uh, the the autumn swinery. Uh, this this <laughs> offensive because it is just it is for nothing and it is nothing but to prove uh, uh, and and that that the Austrians can still fight and, and stroke his uh, Conrad's ego. But it, it it is it is a massive loss of of men that the Austro-Hungarians really don't have. It's my mission in life to use the word swinery as much as possible. <laughs> we just skipped one uh, okay. important one. Um, as of course another offensive um, in 1915, and that is the Austro-German-Bulgarian invasion of Serbia. Yeah, uh, because um, as as we remember, the uh, the um, uh, Austro-Hungarians uh, failed to to uh, to take over Serbia in um, in in 1914, uh, but in uh, in 1915. Of course, the Ottoman Empire is now in the war uh, since November 1914, and um, they're famously uh, done well at at Gallipoli. Um, and they they but they've also suffered some major defeats at the Suez Canal, uh, Canal and uh, in the Caucasus against the uh, the Russians. So the Germans begin to think that by by uh, by taking over uh, Serbia, they they can um, link up uh, with the um, with the Ottoman Empire and and supply them that way, um, but of course the Austro-Hungarians are still too weak to to actually do something on their own in the Balkans. Uh, but uh, in uh, September, uh, Bulgaria, who is swayed by by the victories of Golisatanov, and uh, of course also Austria-Hungary's successful. Uh, uh, stopping of of the Italians decide to join the war on on the central powers. Uh, um, and in early October, a combined force consisting of Austro-Hungarian and German uh, and Bulgarian troops, uh, again commanded by by uh, by von Mackensen, the great victor of Golisatalo, they will launch an invasion of Serbia. And the Serbian army, by this point, is com- is very weak from from uh, of course the uh, the uh, the casualties in, in 1914, but also by disease, which has taken out a lot of their fighting strength uh, during 1915. And uh, they, they, they can't, they're putting off a, a stiff resistance, but they can't really do anything because they're being attacked from, from all sides, really, at this point. And, and they're forced to evacuate their entire army. Um, they'll uh, they'll uh, walk through the, the mountains uh, into Albania, um, uh, about 400,000 soldiers and civilians will take part in in this retreat, uh, but but ultimately, you know, only about 120,000 Serbian troops will actually make it and be evacuated to to Corfu, uh, where another 10,000 soldiers uh, will die of exhaustion over the, the next coming weeks and, and disease. Uh, it is a horrendous uh, retreat through the mountains in in. Uh, in October and November, uh, and, and and will have an enormous cost. But of course, the Serbs will save their army um, in a way. Yeah, I, I had to cover that 
further eaten book. It actually didn't make it into the final book mm. because there was too much other stuff. But there were it was uh, they were with a British unit ambulance unit who went out to Serbia and they ended up doing that retreat. And just the accounts of people flinging themselves on half dead horses and just eating them raw and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that Serbia lost twenty five percent of their population in World War One, mm. I think, and there was a yeah, massive like outbreak of disease in that as well. But of all, I think that's the highest percentage of any country in World War One. So that was no small thing, was it? That retreat? No, no, no it's it's a major event, uh, especially for for a country like Serbia. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the the it has a positive outcome in a way. As as I said, they they do save the army and they they will be back to fight uh, on the uh, Macedonian front later on. Um, but but for now, the the Austro-Hungarians uh, and and the central powers have of course freed up an enormous amount of, of of troops that are much needed uh, on all the other fronts at this point, and they of course linked up with with the Ottomans. So the Eastern Front is quite quiet. The Serbians are decimated after this retreat. Um, they're still striking through the mountains, aren't they? At this point, what is going on on the Italian front? Yeah, uh, in. Uh, in uh, March uh, 1915, the uh, fifth battle of the Isunsto, uh begins, and it is uh, very much uh, an attempt to uh, to support uh, the French, who are now at this point find it fighting in the Battle of, of Verdun, and it's 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 a smaller battle, uh, the fifth battle. Um, uh, it is pretty much halted. Uh, almost immediately, with no, with no gains due to uh, mainly due to bad weather. Um, but it it does have uh, the effect that Conrad is is looking at this and thinking, okay, maybe this is the time that I should go on the offensive because since uh, December 1915 he has contemplated a combined Austro-German offensive against Italy. But Falkenhayn, uh, they are not always friends, uh, and he has always uh, denied sending uh, any German troops to Econ, and he will not do this again, especially because he now needs them all for for his uh, his new offensive at Badon. Um So, um, um, yeah, Conrad decides to go on the offensive anyway, but of course on his own. Uh, and this is what will be known as the uh, Straf Expedition or Punitive Expedition, which he will launch in the Trentino area, not in, on the Asunso, but uh, in the Trentino area. And his idea is is that he will uh, punch through uh, the Italian lines in the mountains and then uh, fight his way all the way to to, uh, to Venice and then cut off the entire Asunso front with, with two entire Italian armies uh, trapped in there. Um, but... Um, while while it does uh, go quite well for him uh, in in the beginning, uh, it, it is stopped um, because uh, main, mainly because he he can't really push through the mountains. The mountains are limiting uh, his his advance because the the, the roads clog up and and uh, the Italians are then able to to transfer additional troops to the area and and um, and they are halted before they even reach the uh, the Venetian plain. Uh, so by by June, it's clear that his offensive has failed, and the Austro-Hungarians have suffered another uh, eighty thousand casualties. Of course, the Italians suffer more in this this attack; they suffer almost one hundred and fifty thousand. But it is 
it it is a a, a failed opportunity, and it will have enormous consequences um, for the Austro-Hungarians this, this attack. So, how's the second half of nineteen sixteen looking? I'm hopeful. Mm, well, it it uh, looks very bad for them because, of course, <laughs> yeah, there is no hope for Lena. Looking no, for the point no where hope. the Russians are about to slap them about, aren't they? Exactly. Um, yeah. Thanks because... for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Conrad's in charge. There is no hope. No, uh, the um, the offensive uh, in in the Trentino has taken up a lot of a lot of uh, forces, uh, which has had to be drawn from from other parts of the front. Uh, but uh, of course, the the main thing that happens just about this time when the offensive ends is that the Russians go on the offensive. Um, the uh, the famous uh, uh, Russian general, the pro, yeah. Uh, almost uh, everybody will agree that he is is the best Russian general uh, uh, of the First World War, Alexei Brusilov. Um, he has been planning a, an offensive uh, against the Austro-Hungarians to, again, relieve pressure from the French uh, defending uh, Verdun and, of course, at this point, also the Italians in, in Trentino. Uh, and uh, he has really thought out a... Uh, uh, masterful offensive. He, he doesn't have many shells, but what he's going to do is that he's going to make a very uh, short and intense bombardment of the Austro-Hungarian lines. And then what he has done is that he's ordered his troops dig uh, uh, like saps very, very close to the Austrian uh, lines so that the his infantry can can move in very, very quickly uh, and, and take over the Austro-Hungarians. Now, we have to go back a little bit uh, because in the end of 1915 um, uh, and, and early days of, of 1916, the Austro-Hungarians and Russians, they fight a, a series of battles called, normally called the New Year's battles. Um, and they're, they're quite successful defensive actions on, on part of the uh, Austro-Hungarians. And they, they give the... Austro-Hungarians uh, a false sense of, of security, that they have sort of found out how to deal with the Russians through building very strong defensives like they do on, on the Western Front. Um, so they, they build very, very heavy defensive positions, but they don't really have the troops to man them. So they put all their troops in these frontal positions and don't really have many reserves. Uh, so when the Russians open up their, their, um, uh, their artillery bombardment, which is not very long, but very intense. Uh, it will strike the main part of the Austro-Hungarian troops, um, and of course, as soon as the the uh, bombardment ends, the Russians are already on top of the Austro-Hungarians when they come out, and it completely breaks the uh, the the Austro-Hungarian army. Um, the initial attack force of Brasilov is. is Enormous! It's like six hundred thousand troops uh, that that will just pour in over the Austro-Hungarian lines, and um, and um, yeah, uh, the, the breakthrough is is just total, and 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 the Russians in no time break the Austro-Hungarian morale and and take some four hundred thousand prisoners, um, and and pretty much the only thing that can prevent a complete collapse of the Austro-Hungarian army is the uh, the transfer of German troops and placing uh, Austro-Hungarian troops under German command. Um, 
I said to you, the Brazil offensive uh, in many ways ends the Austro-Hungarian uh, military independence, uh, at least in the East for, for now, because from now on, um, it will be uh, on paper an Austro-Hungarian commanding a corps, for example. Uh, but in reality, it is uh, his chief of staff who will be German, who is commanding it. So, so not to lose prestige, it will look like it's Austro-Hungarians. But, but in reality, it it will pretty much be be run uh, the entire show in the east by the by the Germans, and they will be calling all the shots um, from from then on. Um, in the end, the uh, the arrival of German troops and the extension of the Russian supply lines ends the offensive in in September. Um, Brazilov has not knocked Austria-Hungary out of the war. It is still, it is one of the most staggering victories of the First World War. But of course, as many staggering victories of the First World War are, it doesn't really do much in 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 the long run. Uh, it doesn't end the war, and it doesn't knock Austria-Hungary out of the war. But it does cause a hell of a lot of casualties. Uh, there. The Austrian games will suffer some 600,000 casualties. Some sources are up towards 900,000. Um, with the Germans losing somewhere between 150 and 300,000 men. But, of course, the Russians are again way ahead with, with almost a million casualties. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, I'm going off on a tangent now. Yeah, for my, one of my Alex tangents, four hundred thousand prisoners. Mm. How did they get treated? How do you logistically, if you're the Russians and you can't even get your own shit together? Mm. Um, like in, I mean, in terms of like a whole country, in terms of like logistics and moving and munitions and stuff, they're getting a lot of outside support. How do you look after four hundred thousand people? Well, a lot of them will be sent uh, into prison camps in in in, in the east, uh, and there are some horrendous uh, accounts of of uh, prison life in in uh, in in the far east. Uh, sometimes it's it's more conventional uh, prison of war camps, but but many times it, it's pretty much just sending people to almost live on their own by themselves. And and of course, a lot of them will be caught up in 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 the la- later turmoil of, mm. of revolutions and uh, and so on. But uh, yeah, it, it, it poses a, a, an incredible channel, challenge as well. But but it, it is not uh, it's not a, 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 it, it is not 
beneficial <laughs> to the Austro-Hungarian no. soldiers uh, to because of course with that many troops the the Russians can't take care of them properly. Um, but then again, on on the other hand, the the Austro-Hungarians are not very uh, uh, good towards their Russian prisoners. Um, they will use a lot of them, even though it's against a lot of conventions in war zones. A lot of Russians will die in, uh, uh, or sorry, on 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 the Italian front, very close mm. to the lines from from various uh, work-related injuries. It's also sometimes by Italian shellfire because they're simply used there to dig trenches and and carry supplies and and collect wounded uh, and so on. Um, but yeah, the the, the Brusilov offensive creates an enormous amount of casualties, and uh, they they of course we we. The casualty figures of World War One are notoriously, uh, you know, unreliable. But there's talks about it being almost a million dead and wounded uh, in about three months of fighting, making the Brusilov Offensive arguably the bloodiest battle of the First World War. It is just insane. Um, and then another enemy comes in against Austria-Hungary. But this is kind of it's a bit of a farce, isn't it? Which country is it? Why do they come in? And what happens? Yeah, in uh, in August, um, the Romanians enter the war. Uh, of course, uh, they like uh, Italy uh, have eyes on Austro-Hungarian territory. In this, in the in their case, it's uh, it's, it's uh, Transylvania, uh, and the success of Russian uh, of the Russian offensive really convinces them to join the war on the side of the Allies. But the problem is that they do it. In August, uh, not in 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 the early parts of of the um, of the offensive where everything is going well, they're doing it at a time where the Russians are beginning to to have spent all their resources on this massive battle. Um, so when when they enter the war, uh, they will launch an offensive into uh, Transylvania. Um, but of course, uh, some time before it might have been decisive and, and been able to knock the Austro-Hungarians completely out but but at this time the, the both the Austro-Hungarians and and uh, Germans uh, are able to 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 rally troops and send to the area and and make some uh, some uh, strong counterattacks uh, and and launch uh, new offensives and uh, by by the end of the year uh the the Austro-German forces have captured the Romanian capital of Bucharest uh, and pretty much ended Romania's war uh, for about the next seven months where the Romanian front will be stagnant. Uh, but of course, again, they are not, not knocking Romania out of the war. Uh, Romania will spend the time licking their wounds uh, and rebuild their army, but they are out for now. It is a, a, a relatively quick campaign. Um and um, now I mentioned that it was like the Italians, and things are, of course, also happening um, on the Italian front in the wake of this Brusilov offensive, because as we said, the um, uh, the Trentino offensive had had dragged troops from from uh, from Austria-Hungary's other fronts, and one of these fronts is called the Sanso Front, and now with so many troops lost in in uh, in the east uh Cardona launches a new offensive the sixth battle of the Asanso. um uh and what 
what differs this time is that it is much more limited offensive, where the other ones have been very broad on on, on broad fronts. This one is aimed at, at specific points, uh, and uh, it is the first real uh, noticeable success on the Italian part, as they will take um, some some important hills, uh, and they will also take the city of Gorizia or Goetz in the process, uh, which is a completely unimportant city strategically, but it is a an, an important boost to, to Italian morale. Um, then we have three more battles. <laughs> yeah, uh, in the autumn uh, we have three more battles, and for those keeping score, it's the seven, eight, and ninth battles. Uh, now all of these are um, smaller, shorter battles, but no less intense. Uh, they're they're just going to last a, th- a few days each. But just as an example, the eighth battle, for example. It claims ninety thousand casualties on both sides in just three days. So they are not they are they are very intense fights. Um, there's one in September, there's one in October, and there's one in November, and all of them are uh, following um, the sixth battle uh, and where the Italians are trying to to expand the bridgehead on the other side of the Sonso uh, that they, they they gathered in the sixth battle with the capture of uh, of Gorizia. Uh, but of course, due to high casualties, these these battles have to be terminated almost immediately. And once again, Cadorna has failed to his breakthrough. Um, and uh, you know, by the by the um, by the time the ninth battle ends, the Italians have have suffered uh, a further hundred and ten thousand casualties, and the Austro-Hungarians around ninety thousand. It's just insanity, isn't it? Yeah. And then. The Austro-Hungarian emperor dies. He's finally had enough. He's about four hundred years old. The man <laughs> yes. is terrified of the telephone. It's it's not his world anymore, is it? It is a new world. It is a completely different world from the one he he grew up in. And he he dies uh, uh, on the twenty first of November, uh, nineteen sixteen, at the age of eighty six of pneumonia uh, after four and a half decades of rule. And I mean, he's, he's a contemporary of Queen Victoria, isn't he? He is, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's succeeded by the complete opposite, a very young man. Uh, he is um, succeeded by his grandnephew, Carl, who's just 29 year old, years old, um, who become the, who became the, the heir to the throne when Franz Ferdinand was shot in Sarajevo. Now, Carl is, uh, is, a, is an interesting man. Um because he is actually a military man. He, he's uh, a guy who's grown up never thinking that he would be emperor uh, and and launching a military career. And during the war, he will actually hold military command. Um, um, he uh, he will command uh, a corps doing Conrad Strangino offensive, and he will command an army group uh, on the eastern and, uh, and Romanian front. Uh, and this is going to influence his his reign um, immensely because, as a field commander, he was always uh, known for showing concern for the well being of his men and and willing uh, unwillingness to sacrifice them. Um, whether this is true or not, uh, I'm not entirely sure. But uh, but and and how much control he actually had is also debatable. Uh, but that's the reputation he has, and it is pretty much also this that that, that will uh, characterize his his reign as emperor, because his main goals are going to be uh, ending the war, and of course saving his empire 
uh, alongside it. We're now at the end of 1916, and at the Alpine Front, what happens? Yeah, uh, we haven't really talked about uh, the Alpine Front that much. We've only talked about the Isonzo Front uh, so so far um, when we talk about the Italian Front. But of course, the uh, Italian Front is much more. Uh, most of it is, of course, covered by by, by Alps, um, and um, and this is a a front of extremes. It's fought over the possession of some of the highest mountains in Europe. Um, uh, and sometimes in places where there's year-round snow. And in, in fact, uh, un- until recently, you know, border conflicts between India and Pakistan, uh, the, the war in the Alps was pretty much the highest war in history. Um, the Austro-Hungarian trench uh, on the summit of uh, the almost four-kilometer-tall uh, Ortla uh, are, or remain the, the highest trenches ever dug in history. Um, now, often this fighting uh, took place between smaller units of specially trained Alpine troops uh, and just a single company of men holding a well-entrenched mountain position could uh, represent an impossible uh, to overcome obstacle for the other side. And because of this uh, small unit warfare, uh, differing greatly from, from these enormous uh, armies slugging it out on the wars of the fronts. It's also um, a place that will sort of uh, breed uh, individuals as, as heroes and and uh, almost comparable to, to what we see with, with aces um, uh, in, in the other armies uh, as, uh, you know, lone fighters that everybody will know by name. Uh, and so some of them will become quite famous, both Italians and Austro-Hungarians. Um, yeah, but of course the the war in the Alps is is not without da- it's dangerous and the reason we, we we're doing the Alpines front now is because we're in December 1916 uh, and around this time the uh, the uh, there's an estimated uh, ten thousand Austro-Hungarian and Italian soldiers killed uh, during this month by avalanches alone. Jesus. So it really shows how dangerous this front front is. It's not where you want to be sent, is it? Yeah. Do you know what I got to try nope. in Peru? You know the Via Ferrata where they designed, um, they, they started nailing step, steps into mm-hmm. the mountain, didn't they, to climb? I actually yeah. got to do that in the Inca Valley because there's a mad hotel that's basically pods hanging off the side of a cliff and you have to climb that. So I actually got to try scaling the cliff face on that. And we had like massive amounts of safety harnesses and stuff. But I cannot imagine... Mm going up and down that regularly. Oh, often they would just have a single rope. Of course, they will also build um, cable carts to transport uh, supplies up and down the mountains. Um, and, and some of these mountain positions are going to be extremely elaborate. Uh, the Mamalada uh, gla- Glacier is famous for having what becomes known as the, the ice village or the ice town inside it, uh, which is this massive complex of, of Austro-Hungarian positions dug into the, to the, to the ice. Um, some of it is, is destroyed in, in December 1916 during avalanches. Uh, I th- think a single avalanche or something like that kills about 300 men in, in, in that place. Um, yeah, so it, it is, it's a brutal front um, in, in different ways than we normally hear. Uh, when we talk about the First World War. So you mentioned Alpine heroes being like air aces, almost. 
What about Austro-Hungarian air races? Yeah, the the Austro-Hungarian air force is, is an interesting uh, subject because um, while they didn't have um, many um, aircraft, they really suffered through through most of the war from lack of, of aircraft. They did have some quite um, successful pilots uh, between, and uh, we can just talk about a few of them because there are some really interesting ones uh, in between. Um, one that I find interesting uh, is um, is an ace. He's called uh, Julius Arigi. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that uh, right. He's um, he was born in in what is t- uh, today um, uh, the Czech Republic, and he's the uh, second highest scoring race of um, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire with 32 credited victories, and he is also the most highly decorated ace of uh, Austria-Hungary. Um, but 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 he he's uh, uh, he's often described as this uh, amazing natural um uh flyer um and um and he will also go on to, to uh, after the war and, and during the second world war he will become uh, the instructor for some of of uh, of the uh, the luftwaffe's uh, most most famous uh, aces and and highest scoring aces um but one of the stories that I always find fascinating is, is that uh, that he became an ace along with one other person uh, in one flight. Um, the, a, being an ace uh, at this time was counted as having five confirmed victories. And uh, he did that on the 22nd of August 1916, uh, where he took flight against a, a group of, of Italian um, uh, aircraft and engaged six uh, Italian uh, bombers uh, with an observer manning a machine gun, uh, and they managed to to shoot down five of them, uh, becoming aces in one sortie. Oh wow! Uh, so that yeah, it's quite incredible. And and <laughs> another interesting fa- fact is that the the guy he flew with wasn't even a pilot or, or a flyer. Uh, I believe he's he was part of the ground crew, and it's the only it's the only combat sortie he will ever take part in, and he becomes an ace in that one. That's actually uh, his name incredible. Johan Lassi, yeah. But even more incredible and a funny story that I've had a little trouble uh, confirming, but it's such a great story that it's, it's, it would be a miss not to mention it, that uh, in uh, a few, uh, about a year before uh, this happened, in October 1915, he's, uh, he's forced down when, when he has a failure, uh, he, an engine failure um, over uh, Montenegro uh, doing a a reconnaissance flight, and he's captured. Uh, and uh, he will, he will, um, he will repeatedly try to escape, and he will succeed on his sixth try in in uh, in early 1916, I believe. Uh, but what is most amazing about it is that that the way he he escapes is that he manages to steal uh, an enemy staff car belonging to the Prince of Montenegro and drive all the way to his own lines and rejoin Austro-Hungarian troops. So wow. I, I think that's quite an amazing story, if it's true. <laughs> I wish but, it was um, true. I also wish it's true. But I am not an expert on Austro-Hungarian air war as such, uh, so I haven't really been able to look too much into it, but it's a great story nonetheless. Uh, but they also have other uh, interesting uh, flyers. Uh, another one that I find interesting is a guy called Gottfried Freier von Banfield. Um who is a naval pilot, uh, and he is um, 
flying out of uh, Trieste in, uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a flying boat. And he has nine confirmed victories. And I believe he is the only uh, ace, uh, fighter ace, to, to become so while flying a flying boat. But Austria-Hungary will suffer a lot during the war, uh, trying to, to, to uh, for, first of all, uh, develop some of their own planes. Uh, not all of them will be successful. They will, they'll often have to take on some some designs that, that will probably have been rejected other, other in, in, in other air forces. Uh, and they also struggle that the machine gun they have, um, the Schwarzlose uh, machine gun, um, is not very suited to being a... Um, a, an aircraft machine gun, as it has a, a tendency to to um, uh, to to spit oil out. The the uh, the cartridges has to be lubricated. So when you're flying with the machine gun in front and and you fire, the uh, you, the uh, the the pilot would be splashed by by pretty much boiling oil as he he fired his gun. So so it will take some time to to develop a version that is suitable for for uh, frontal facing machine guns. And for a long time, they will have to fly with these strange contraptions on top of their wings in, in big boxes. Um, and they will also have many other uh, issues with uh, poor quality of, of uh, canvas on the, the wings that, that many of their planes would, would uh, simply fall apart in air. Um, and they will never have enough uh, planes. Nikolai, thank you so much for coming back again to record part two. Of this. Part three is fine. I've checked. Part three is banging. We're good. Um, Otherwise, we'll do that one too. <laughs> yeah, no, we're good. We're, we've done it. You can go hang with your kids and uh, do, well, I was going to say do fun stuff. I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to go and uh, run and work on that secret squirrel project that you and I are working on. Exactly. Um, we are so I feel left about. out. Uh, well, you can play because when we come off air, I'll tell you how you can play with that secret squirrel project. Yay. Yay. Anyway, thank you so much people are people awesome. love you people have been waiting to hear you talk everyone <laughs> says that like, i notice how you've changed your twitter hold now so people can actually see your real name because yeah. everybody's starting to connect <laughs> up that the exactly. awesome guy on history hack is the awesome guy with all the photos so yeah people love you you're welcome back anytime we'll put this one Thank out you. and then we still have 1917 and 18 it's less busy but there's still about a million battles of the azonzo to come and then the crumbling of the austro-hungarian empire which we're excited to talk to you about. Yeah. Join us on Monday because Craig Stockings will be with us to talk about Australian myths in military history. Now, this was suggested way back when we did an interview with Gary Sheffield that this would be a great podcast to have because he looks at some sort of multi-headed myths about Australians and war and basically takes them apart. So join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.